0: The First Amendment to the Constitution begins with these words Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What that actually means has been debated since it was written. Thomas Jefferson tried to clarify it when writing to the Danbury Baptist Association 10 years after it was ratified. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach only Uh, Reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign, sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, his phrase, a wall of separation between church and state, really didn't solve the debate. It simply gave everyone another phrase to argue about. But without entering into the fray, I think we all recognize the need for a separation between church and state. None of us would want the state running the church, and most of us wouldn't want the church running the state. That is not to say, however, that God isn't intimately involved in the affairs of state. Nor does it mean that since we are pilgrims and strangers on earth, with our citizenship in heaven, that we have no obligations or responsibilities to the state. And Paul addressed this very important issue when writing to Christians living in the capital of the Roman Empire around 60 A.D. So as we move into the 13th chapter of Romans this morning, let's see if we can't come to a better understanding of the true relationship between God and country by acknowledging that civil governments are God's institutions God's instruments and God's intruders. We begin by accepting the fact that governments, all governments, are God's institutions. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God... And those which exist are established by God. Now, do you find it surprising that Paul not only says there is no authority except from God, but that those which exist are actually established by God? That means every government that exists or has ever existed on earth was established by God. Now, that's hard to accept, isn't it? It's easy for us to believe that God established America, but South Korea and Iran? Still, Paul clearly states that those which exist are established by God. Now, I believe that goes beyond acknowledging the fact that God has ordained civil governments. It means that even the man on the throne is there, if not by God's choosing, at least by his permissive will. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, refusing to answer his questions, Pilate finally asked, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? Well, Jesus did respond to that question. He said, you could have no power except it be given you from above. Whether Pilate knew it or not, God was the one who put him in power. And God was the one who was calling the shots here, not Pilate. Now, that wasn't an isolated case. Back in chapter 9, Paul reminded us that it was God who raised Pharaoh to power and set him on the throne of Egypt. And Jeremiah referred to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as God's servant. And Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus, a future king of Persia, would be God's anointed shepherd. Now, we tend to think it's elections or revolutions that put men in power, but that's not true. It's God. Now, that's not to say that every man who has ever been in power was God's choice or that every form of government is God-ordained. You know, God has given us freedom in the area of governing Just as he has given us freedom to choose in our personal lives. And just as he does in our personal lives, if we choose to follow his revealed will, he blesses. If we don't, we reap the consequences. You know, someone has said God gives to each nation the government it deserves. And I think there's a degree of truth. In that, Now, that's not to say that everyone who is killed by a Hitler deserves it, or that children starving to death in third world dictatorships deserve to die. There are always innocent victims when men refuse to surrender their will to the authority behind all authority. But even bad government is better than no government at all. And whoever is in power is there if not by God's personal choice at least by his permissive will. So we must be in subjection to the governing authorities whoever they might be. God has either put them there purposefully or has allowed them to be there for one reason or another. Either way. They are God's instruments, verses 2 through 4. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, a avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Since those in authority are established by God, to resist authority is to oppose the ordinance of God. That's why Paul said every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. They are God's ministers. The word is diaconas, servant, deacon. They are God's instruments to praise what is good and to bring wrath on the one who practices evil. That's what God wants those in authority to do, to encourage what is right and discourage what is wrong, and he's given them the authority to do just that. How far does their authority go? It goes even to the taking of life if need be. Paul says the state, the authority, does not bear the sword for nothing. So yes, capital punishment is ordained of God. It was ordained after the flood when God said, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And Paul affirms it here in the New Testament. Now, that is not to say that our present legal system fairly and impartially administers this ordinance of God, but the authority to avenge evil, even to the point of the sword, has been given to man. But now, as we saw in chapter 12, that right has not been given to individuals. We are not to seek our own revenge. But we are to leave room for the wrath of God. And as an instrument of God, the state has been given the right to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. So Paul says, if you want to have no fear of authority, do what is good. You know, there's no need to panic when you see a state trooper in your rear view mirror if you're going the speed limit. But, you're bound to ask, what if the authority isn't doing what it's supposed to do? What if it is encouraging evil and bringing wrath upon the one doing good? Can you ever disobey? The answer is yes. There is adequate precedent in Scripture to justify the refusal to obey an order that goes against the expressed will of God. When the Hebrew midwives were ordered to kill all the male children, they ignored the order. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ordered to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, they refused. And when it was decreed that no one could pray to anyone but the king, Daniel openly prayed to God. When the authorities ordered Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel, they responded, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. And went right on preaching. And when the apostles were imprisoned for continuing to preach, they declared we must obey God rather than man. So yes, there may come a time when we have to disobey An order, or ignore a law. And do note that Paul does not say, let every person obey the governing authority. He said, let every person be in subjection to the governing authority. We can disobey and still be in subjection. We can disobey with a submissive spirit, Respecting the right of the one in authority to punish us for disobeying the law that would require us to disobey the higher law of God. But as a general rule, we are not to resist those in authority, even if we don't like them, even if they are immoral, even if they are evil. Remember who was on the throne when Paul wrote this. It was Nero, the tyrant who would, within a few years, light his arena for night games with the burning bodies of Christians and who, according to tradition, would crucify Peter and behead Paul. So Nero wasn't a benevolent ruler who acknowledged his role as God's minister to praise the good and punish those who practiced evil. But God had established him, and God used him. The persecutions he instituted fanned the flames of evangelism and helped to spread Christianity throughout the empire. And it was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that had made it possible for Paul to evangelize as he did in the first place. So whether they know it or not, the governmental authorities, all of them, are God's instruments. And they are God's intruders. Verses 5 through 7. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of god devoting themselves to this very thing render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honor to whom honor tax collectors intrude into our life they reach into our pocket And they take what belongs to us, and no one likes that. No one likes to work four months out of the year just to pay his taxes. No, we don't like taxes or tax collectors. I know because I was a tax assessor for several summers while going to college. But here Paul refers to the governmental authorities who exact taxes from us as priests, of God. That's what the word used here actually means. It's not the word he used for minister or servant in verse 4. It's liturgos, from which we get the word liturgy or liturgical. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament for ministering priests. and the Old Testament, one of the duties of the priest was to receive tithes and offerings and sacrifices from the people. They were acting as God's Agents in receiving such. In a similar way, government agents minister as priests of God when they collect taxes. Now, we may not like to think of it in those terms, but that's what Paul is saying here. God has authorized governments to collect taxes. So, in paying your taxes, you are paying authorized revenue to God. In other words, the power to tax is God-given. Now, that doesn't mean that all taxes are just, but the principle of taxation is right. Notice also that paying of taxes, as well as subjection to governmental authority in general, is put under the realm of conscience. That means Christians, and the whole passage concerns the attitude of Christians toward government are under a higher obligation than the world in regards to the demands of government. Others may pay their taxes because they're afraid of getting caught. If they don't, but we pay our taxes because God has ordained it and has told us to do so. Jesus himself said... Re- Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When he was asked about paying taxes. So we have a divine obligation to pay our taxes. The government was established by God, and he has ordained that we meet the expenses of governing through taxation. So we render to all What is due them? Tax to whom taxes due? custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, that's not to say we should be foolish when it comes to paying taxes. Proper planning should enable us to pay our fair share without paying more than is necessary, thus freeing up more money to be used in other ways that also glorify God. And Paul is not suggesting that our taxes take the place of our tithe to the church. God has also ordained the church as an institution and has provided for her support through tithes and offerings. But if we'll view paying taxes as a divine obligation, that intruder from the IRS becomes God's intruder. And that's a lot easier to accept the bottom line to all of this is that we've been called to be good citizens here as well as in heaven and we're to not only be in subjection to governing authorities obeying the law and paying taxes we are to respect and honor those who are in office whether we like them and their politics or not, and we are to pray for them. When writing to Timothy, Paul said, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. A tranquil and quiet life is God's desire for us. And that is why he ordained governments. Now, it's true that governments fail, just as individuals do in achieving what God wants. But that's the goal toward which we are to strive. And Paul has given us some very practical instructions on how to get there. I like the way John Stott concludes his comments on this passage. Paul gives us in these verses a very positive concept of the state. In consequence, Christians who recognize that the state's authority and ministry come from God will do more than tolerate it as if it were a necessary evil. Conscientious Christian citizens will submit to its authority, honor its representatives, pay its taxes, and pray for its welfare. They will also encourage the state to fulfill its God-appointed role. And insofar as they have opportunity, actually participate in its work. I like that. And if you have trouble with it, maybe it's because you've not surrendered your all to the lordship of Christ. Christ. You know, none of this makes sense unless you've surrendered your will to his and trust that he is in control of what's going on in the world today. That's hard. But that's what we're called to do. God is in control. We may not understand why he allows all that he allows to happen. We may not see the long term consequence of what's happening and struggle with the short term, but God knows where everything is headed and he has a purpose. His will will be done. We must have confidence. In God. And if you believe God is in control, you can even submit to an imperfect government because you know a perfect God is behind it and his purposes are being accomplished. Again, surrendering to the authority of government. Is not where we begin. We begin by surrendering to the authority of Jesus Christ, acknowledging His Lordship over all aspects of our life. Not just what we do on Sunday morning, but the way we respond to government, the way we respond to laws we don't like, the way we respond to taxation the way we react when we hear things about those in authority that shock us and and horrify us. If we truly believe God is in control and God has ordained government and he has established those who are in power for one reason or another, we can acknowledge his lordship. We can surrender to his will. And we can participate in causing his will to be played out, even in governmental realms. We've been blessed by that opportunity in our country. I thank God for that. Let's just be what God's called us to be. Let's surrender to him and acknowledge his lordship. Let's stand together.